Beginning a new study in the book of Philippians today, it will be a line-by-line, verse-by-verse, in-depth study. That's a little different than what we did in First and Second Thessalonians, where we covered a chapter at a time. I think there was one time when we broke one of the chapters into three different sections. But for this study, our desire is to really dive in, to find out what is in the book of Philippians for you and I. The title of our series is Authentic Joy, because 14 times in the book of Philippians, he brings up joy. He talks about his own joy, and any of us can have joy in the midst of joyful experiences, in the midst of joyful circumstances. But as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, people who he loves, and we'll talk about that more as he begins to address them here, but uh, he's he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. This is a prison epistle. And he speaks about his joy for them, his joy in his life. And so he has joy despite his circumstances. It can't be a good thing for him to be in prison in Rome. But he speaks of the joy that he has in being able to still minister. And so the book speaks to us about what authentic joy is. And it is not connected with circumstances. I saw an article disconnected from this study. It wasn't something I looked up, but disconnected from this study. I saw an article that uh, did a poll for men and women on how often they get extremely emotional. So that's what this article was doing, working off of a poll of men and women being asked the question, how often do you get extremely emotional? The interesting thing to me was that men got emotional more times than women per week. In fact, a significant amount of time. Do you know why? Do you know why men get more emotional? Men are much more invested in sports. That was the reason they came to at the end of the study. And think about it. How happy are you when your team wins? How upset are you when your team loses? I'm watching the Cardinals. I read this article the day after the Cardinals game last Monday night. And I I imagine there's nobody with the tape still going to watch it, right? So they, 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 they score quickly on the Saints. And then the Saints kind of come back and it looks like the game is all over. In fact, I'm thinking about changing the channel because I'm emotional. I don't want to continue to watch it. I'm upset because the Cardinals are losing. But I look on my phone and I see that it's 21 to 24 and we have the ball. So I'm like, well, I'm missing something. So I went back to watch it and we are, we're ready to kick a field goal. We're in field goal position. We're ready to kick the field goal. And I'm like, yes, and I'm getting all excited about it. And then he throws an interception and the game's over. And I immediately just shut it off. I'm like, I don't even want to watch any more of it. So I understand the emotions that come with circumstances, right? And some of you guys, when your team loses, it's like, just don't talk to me for a while. I want about an hour off. That's what I want. I want about an hour off. But the, the Bible tells us that there is a joy that you and I can have that doesn't have anything to do with our circumstances. And we want to talk a little bit about that today as we take a look at the church in, in Philippi. Now, if you want to study, and I would suggest doing this, if you want to look at when the church was planted, which was 10 years from the time that Paul writes the letter. He planted this church 10 years ago from when he wrote it. It's the exact opposite of First and Second Thessalonians. If you studied those books with us, just those were the most recent studies we've had on Wednesday night, you know that Paul planted the church, went from there to Berea, from Berea to Athens, from Athens to Corinth, within about four months of planting the church in Thessalonica, and then wrote a letter back to them just a handful of months later. And then another handful of months wrote the second letter to them. 
And I love the things that he talked about. We pointed out that he talked about the second coming of Jesus, that he talked about the gospel and the power of the gospel. All of this is very early on. Now, 10 years later, when you compare the book of Philippians to the books of first and second Thessalonians, you find that Paul's still talking about the same thing. He hasn't changed. He knows that the power of the gospel is important and he understands that this church needs to be established a little more, even though this church has been established. And you remember that Paul was on a second missionary journey. Paul picks up Timothy in Lystra, the area of Lystra and Derby, has Timothy circumcised. Timothy has a Greek father and a Jewish mother. He, I think he himself circumcises Timothy. And he circumcises him because Paul's M.O., when he goes into a city, this is the way that he evangelizes the city. He goes to the Jewish communities first and he speaks to them about the Old Testament and how it spoke of the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament passages on the Messiah. We call this prophetic ministry. They're using the prophecies in the Old Testament to be able to minister to people. And this would hit the Jewish communities. And then he would go to the Gentiles and he would share that there was a prophecy. There were prophecies that the Messiah was going to be born. He came to Jerusalem. He died there in Jerusalem for them. He gave their lives to them and the church would be born wherever he was. So Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's picked up Timothy. He goes to the area of Galatia and Phrygia, which are two towns that are close to each other. He plants a church in Galatia, but he tells them, you know that I planted the church there with you because of a physical ailment, because of an infirmity. He didn't even plan on planting a church in Galatia. God had that planned and God used a physical infirmity in Paul's life to allow the church to be planted there. And he says that God forbid him from going to Asia. God also forbid him from going a couple of other places. You can read it there in Acts chapter 16. That's where you pick this account up. Just start in verse one of 16 and you're going to read through this. And then while he's over in Troas, which is right across from Macedonia, Macedonia is Europe. It's Northern Greek, Greece. That's what Macedonia is. Think of Philip of Macedonia. Think of Alexander the Great as his son and think of Greece. And so Macedonia, that's where they're at, where Philip of, of, of Macedonia was ruling over. And he sees a vision of a man saying, come to us, come and help us. And so Paul right away from this vision that he saw, goes to Macedonia. And it talks about him going through this city and that city. And I'm not sure how he finally was led to Philippi, but Philippi was the first city that he went to after receiving that call. And he goes to this city. And remember, his MO is to go to the Jewish community. But when he gets there, he finds about 10 women who are worshiping by a river, which tells us something about the city of Philippi. We know that it was significantly smaller than Thessalonica. We also know that if there isn't enough Jewish men to have a synagogue, that they would find a place to meet and worship. So most likely they weren't very many Jews that were in Philippi, but there was one woman. He got a vision of a man saying, come and help me. There was a woman by the name of Lydia who was a seller of purple and he began to minister with her. She received Christ. He shared with her that all these promises, she's Jewish, all these promises that have been in the Old Testament were fulfilled by Jesus Christ, told her the story of him going to Jerusalem, dying there and rising from the dead. And her and some other women committed their lives to Christ. That was the beginning of the church there in Philippi. From there, Paul begins to go around preaching. He's going around the city and he's letting people know about Christ. 
and a demon-possessed girl begins to follow him. And she says this, this man speaks the truth about God. So everywhere he went was a girl who told people's futures. We know that her owners, this is the first century, slavery was a thing. Her, her owners, her masters made money off of her being able to tell the future. And here is this, this woman who practices divin divination by a demonic spirit following Paul and saying, listen to him, he preaches the truth. And finally, Paul gets so upset by it, he turns around and he casts the demon out of the girl. Just doesn't, doesn't want her giving him a bad reputation. And so he casts the demon out. And the people that own her get upset because she was a paycheck for them and they have Paul arrested. And Paul and, and Timothy are immediately arrested. They're bound and they are beaten with rods. It says, when they had laid not a few stripes on them. So when they would beat them with rods, they would stretch them out on the ground. They would put your hands in front of you, your legs behind you, and then they would beat you all along your body. This was a public flogging that took place. And then they took Paul and Silas and they put him in jail. And when Paul and Silas were in jail, about midnight, here, they're, they're in Philippi, about midnight, they begin to sing worship songs. They just begin to, to, to praise. And, and you just see Silas, how, how, about, how about this one? How about 10,000 years, you know? How about, how about this one? How about I can only imagine? And the Bible says the prisoners were listening to, him, to them. And while they were worshiping, and I spent a lot of time, by the way, looking up Bible verses on joy today in preparation for this study. And through the Old Testament, I found so many passages about worship connected with joy. When we gather together to worship the Lord there's a, there's a, and rejoice and rejoicing with Him, there's a connection there. And while they were worshiping, there's an earthquake. The door of the jail swings open and the stocks fall off of the hands and feet of Paul and Silas. Now, if I were in jail and there's an earthquake and a door opens up and my stocks fall off, I think God has delivered me. Doors are open for me to go through and I would leave and go through that door. But Paul didn't do that. When the jailer saw that the door was open, he figured that some of the prisoners had, had escaped and he took out his sword to kill himself. Why would he do that? Because in the Roman world, if prisoners escaped, then you got their, whatever their penalty was, you got their penalty. And Paul cried out when he saw that he was going to kill himself and said, don't kill yourself. We're all here. That Philippian jailer eventually comes in and says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? That, that great statement that all of us love to hear, what must I do to be saved? We think, how can I evangelize someone? Someone coming to us, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe and be baptized, you and your whole family, and you will be saved. They all have to believe, they all have to be, they all believe and they all will all be baptized, but they will all be saved as they surrender their lives to Christ. So I don't know whether the demon-possessed girl got saved. You would think that she would. I don't, I don't know what happened to her after she got delivered. But as far as a church starting, could you imagine? You've got a jailer and his family. You've got an ex-demon-possessed girl that's, that's there. And you've got Lydia and a handful of women that are, are from that region that meet at a river. And from there, God decides to build a church. I love how Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks when a church was planted there. And I love the foundations of this church that was built. 
But we learn something right away as we get into our text. And that's in verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ten years later, there are bishops and there are deacons at the church. Ten years later, this church has been established. Just like Thessalonica, just like Corinth, the church in Philippi had been established. And Paul starts off by speaking of himself being a bondservant. A bondservant was something in the, in the Roman world. You could, you could give yourself voluntarily as a slave. You could say, I want to go work for you and I want to work for you for life. And you would be a bondservant. They would take you to the doorpost. They would put your ear up against the door. I don't quite know how that would work. And then they would drive an awl into your ear. They would pierce your ear. Maybe put gauges in it. I don't know. They'd pierce your ear and you then would be a bondservant. You would wear an earring that says, I am a voluntary servant for this individual. That's what the word bondservant means here. And so when he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, we should see ourselves as voluntary slaves for Jesus. What do you want from me? What do you want me to live? How do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? I am your servant. And, and he says this, by the way, quite often in the beginning of his letters, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. And then to all the saints. And this is, this is just regular Christians. We are saints. To all the saints who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Bishops would be the pastors. The deacons would be the ones who would take care of the physical needs. Bishops would take care of the spiritual needs. In other places, like in Titus and Timothy, when it talks about elders, that would be the same thing. You would have bishops, you would have elders who would take care of spiritual needs, and you would have deacons that take care of the physical needs of the body. It's the reason that here at the church here, that's the way that we do it. We have pastors and we have elders that oversee the spiritual needs and we have deacons that oversee the physical needs. So if you have a need, if you have a financial need, then you would contact the church office. You would let them know, you know what, I'm struggling right now. I've lost my job. I can't get my bills paid. I don't know what to do. We would connect you up with a deacon. The deacon would meet with you and see how we might be able to come alongside and help you. We also have a fund at the church that is for... Um, for people who are outside of the church. We have a fund to help people that don't go. We have a fund that helps people that go to the church. And we have a, a fund also that helps people that are outside of the church. Those who may be homeless, those who may need food. We've got food pantries for that. But God established from the very beginning this concept of taking care of spiritual needs and physical needs. And it's part of what we do as a church. It's part of what all churches should do is meet the spiritual needs of individuals and the physical needs of individuals. He then says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I shared with you when we were in, Thess in the book of 1 Thessalonians that this combination of grace and peace is a combination between a Jewish and a Greek greeting. In Greece, in Europe, Macedonia, they would say grace. And by saying grace to one another when they would greet each other, they were saying the grace of the gods be on you. Paul obviously changed that meaning. The grace of God. It's not the grace of gods be with you, but the grace of God be with you. 
And then in, in Jerusalem to this day, you say shalom. When you greet someone in Israel, shalom, shalom. When you say goodbye and hello, it's shalom, which is the peace of God be with you. So it's a combination of Paul who would go and preach to Jews everywhere who were dispersed everywhere and he would preach to Gentiles as well. And once again, it reveals to us that there's this combination of Jews and Gentiles who had been saved. So grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And how good to know that these are two main themes in the scriptures. The grace of God, God's undeserved favor. How many people here appreciate God's undeserved favor? The fact that God just, just we don't deserve it and God gives it to us. And when we, sometimes we feel like, oh, I don't deserve it. Well, that's the point. That's why it's grace. And then peace, that we would have peace of God and peace with God, that we know we have peace with him and the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. And so he wishes them that. He says, from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll remind you that the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach. All of the New Testament is centered around the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is not his name. It's Jesus, the Messiah. And I love the fact that we have all of the history of the Old Testament that foretold that a Messiah was going to come, told us about him dying and suffering in several places. And then the New Testament history of how after the Messiah came, he established the ecclesia, the church, and empowered us to do the work that God's called us to do. I also love when we were studying 1 Thessalonians, the fact that we are carrying on the work that Paul started so long ago as he went around planting churches and that we continue to see it here as we turn now to Philippi. He then says in verse three, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time he remembers that Philippian jailer, every time he remembers Lydia down by the, by the river and they're worshiping, even the, the girl who was delivered from the demon. He thanks God on every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy. He says, I, here he is in prison, and he says, always at all times, making requests for you with all joy. There is power in prayer. Prayer changes things. God wants to answer your prayer. The Bible tells us that God, that we don't have because we don't ask. So there's a certain point in which we're not asking God for certain things. What kind of things should we be asking God for? We should be asking for things that we know he wants to answer. And that's where I think it's first John that says, if we pray and we know he hears us, we know he gives us what we pray for. But what kind of things are we praying for? Are we praying for salvation? The Bible says that God desires all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. That's not just one place, that's a couple of uh, three places in the New Testament. So God wants people to be saved and we should be praying that people would come to Christ because it gives them their eternity. This should be a part of our prayer for those around us that don't know Christ. We should pray for peace among, with one another. Pray for me that I would have peace in my life. Pray that I would have joy in my life. These are prayers that God wants to answer. And I will pray for you, that you will have peace in your life, that you will have joy in your life, that God will be doing a work in you. These are things that God will answer. It's, it's not that we can never go out in faith and ask for something that we're not sure whether or not God wants it. But you realize in that case that it might not be the will of God. Jesus said, if you ask anything according to my will, it will be done for you. Well, then our desire should be to find out what is the will of God. 
What kind of things can I pray for so my prayers are effective and efficient? And our prayers are effective. And then it goes on to say in James that our prayers are not answered because we ask amiss wanting to spend them on our own pleasure. In other words, we're like, God, give me a new car. Give me more money. You know, we're, we're praying about things that in the long run don't make a difference in our lives. You, you say, well, if I'm driving a new car, it makes a difference in my life. Yeah, for a while. But pretty soon that car just feels old. Amen. Right? We've gotten new cars before, right? You get a new car, you drive it for a while, and pretty soon you're like, oh, I wish I had a new car. So Paul prayed for them, particularly in respect to their joy, making a request to you with all, excuse me, he made prayers for them with requests with all joy. It was his joy to be able to pray for them. What a good thing for us to consider our prayer lives, to allow God to speak to us now, to encourage us for the kind of things to pray about, make a prayer list. All of you guys have cell phones now, right? Oh, make a prayer, make a prayer note. What, what do they call it on Androids, by the way? Because I have an iPhone. So on, on me, it's notes. Notes. Is it notes? Hey, make a note. Make a prayer note. And go in and, and write it through. And when your prayer is answered, just put a strike through in it. Instead of just erasing it, put a strike through. You can come back and you can look and go, God answered that one. He answered that one. He answered that one. He answered that one. And begin to look for things that you know God wants to do. What kind of things does God want to do? Let me pray for those things. I'm not saying you don't pray for other things. I'm not saying you don't pray for your desires. But remember, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. So when you delight in God, your desires change and you begin to want things that God can answer. You say, well, I ask God all the time and God doesn't answer me, so I don't pray anymore. What are you delighting in? Are you delighting in the things of this world? No wonder there's desires for the sensual things of this world. Are you delighting yourself in God? Then you'll have the desires of your heart. The New Testament aspect of that is in Philippians, excuse me, is in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, abide in me and let my word abide in you and whatever you desire will be given to you. As you abide in Christ, you delight in the Lord, you abide in Christ. As you learn his word, which is powerful, it's alive, it's active, the Bible tells us that all of this is inspired by him, profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that we could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. And as we delight in his, and you get his word inside of us, we begin to know what to pray for. We begin to pray and we begin to see effective prayer lives. And that's what we want. We want effective prayer lives. Paul knew that. He knew that his prayers for them from that prison, he might not be able to be there ministering to them, but he knew that his prayers for them from that prison made a difference and it caused joy in his life. He was joyful because he knew he was making a difference with his prayers. He says then in verse five, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So let's read all from verse four again. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the word fellowship there is the word koinonia. It's that partnership. It's the New Testament word for fellowship. We are to have koinonia with one another. Quite frankly, it's, it's really what the church is supposed to be about. It's about developing relationships and getting to know one another. You can go to Bible studies. I mean, these days, you can watch Bible studies from home. And that's 
quite, quite frankly, the danger that you would sit at home and, and see a, and, and watch and part participate in a good Bible study. But in the end, you're not making any fellowship. What was their fellowship in? It wasn't just fellowship, fellowship in the gospel. I love here 10 years after the first book that was written in the New Testament, Paul talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Thessalonians. And now to Philippi, he talks about their fellowship in the gospel. In all of the books, if you can go back and you read Romans and you read 1 Corinthians, you read 2 Corinthians, he talks about the power of the gospel for salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he loves you, that apart from him, you are condemned in your sin, that Jesus came and died on the cross so that you could be forgiven by receiving him. Jesus is passing by. And if you say, I want you in my life, come have dinner with me. Come into my life. I want you to participate. Jesus will come in and participate with you. That's the gospel. They preached the gospel. And this is what sets people free. This is the opportunity that we have to be able to share with people what Jesus is all about. And when I'm sharing with someone, I love to point out that the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in prophecies that the gospel is laid out in the Old Testament first and then fulfilled in the New Testament. So it's not just something that someone randomly came up with because people kind of have that idea. Christians came up with the gospel. Jesus got himself crucified. And so they thought, what better to do than to have him die on the cross for us? But when you see that these things were foretold, his death was foretold in great detail. One of the most amazing passages in the Old Testament is Psalms 22 which is the first person account of a crucifixion. In fact, it starts off, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And it says that uh, there in Psalms 22, that they cast lots for his clothes. They divided his garments among them and cast lots for his cloak. And we know those things exactly happened to Jesus. I think Psalms 22 is not just a first person account of a crucifixion. I believe it is the crucifixion of Jesus. And when you go back and read it, it is absolutely amazing how it's connected there. And this is the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God to salvation and should be first and foremost of what we do. We, you and I, are in a partnership, a koinonia, a fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are sharing, that we are living this among people. This is the reason the church continued on. This is the reason the church was established because of their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He encourages them that they have been faithful to the gospel. May we, when we stand before Christ, be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God say to us that we as a church have been faithful from the very beginning. Back in the early days of the church, I'm talking about the 80s now, we did a program called Straight Ahead. Just out of curiosity, is there anybody here that remembers it? Straight ahead. Come on, there's got to be one. Okay, then one, two, three. Anybody else? Looking around? All right, Straight Ahead was a rock and roll program, a Christian rock and roll program. This is back in the 80s, by the way, where they had Christian rock and roll, all right? I'm telling you, it was Christian rock and roll. And we played it at midnight on ABC. And in between... We had a phone number that was up down on the bottom. We played it from midnight till 1.30 or something. We had people that would come down to the church at midnight and answer the phone. And we played it. And in between, I had little clips I would give. So I have my mustache. I got my little round glasses that are on. I don't know where Troy found it, but Troy found one of these little clips and showed it to me. This is in the early 80s. And, it, and, and I'm talking about the gospel. 
I'm saying, now, if you want to come to, and it's the same presentation that I give today, 30 years ago. And I, and I hope that God says on the day where he speaks about what we've done here in Tucson, that God would say, you have been faithful to the gospel. That has been, a, but what we have given year after year after year, knowing that is what changes people's lives. Now let's take a few minutes to talk about joy. He says here that he makes a request for them with all joy. And I told you before that 14 times in this, in this uh, book, he talks about joy. So joy seems to be somewhat fragile. As I said already with the sports illustration, the truth is that despondency, despair, depression, having a broken heart are all a part of lives and Christians' lives too. To think that we are never going to be in despair, that we're never going to have heartbreak, that we're never going to be distraught is to not think realistically. And I love that the Old Testament deals with it. I love especially the book of Psalms. When someone asked, if I'm just discouraged, what book of the Bible should I read? My, my encouragement is to read the Psalms. Just start reading a few Psalms a night. If, they, if it's a longer Psalm, just read one. <laughs> There's some of them that are really long, but most of them are really short. But you find that so often they talk about the despair of their soul. Why so downcast, oh my soul? They're talking about, they, they, the, the psalmist face it. And, and almost always they turn around. Almost always they're like, I will say to myself, you know, why are you so downcast? Get it together. They kind of talk to themselves about getting and pulling it together and putting their trust and their hope in God. There's one psalm that doesn't do it. And that psalm is a messianic psalm that reflects Jesus upon the cross, reflects the suffering and the despair that he went through in the garden. And um, we'll, we'll cover that psalm at, a, at, at some point in the future. But I think it's important for us to, to, not, to not think that we're never going to have despair, that we're never going to, to be down, that we're never going to have some kind of despondency in our lives. I think it's unrealistic. We're going to have that. Events are going to happen that are going to cause us to have a certain kind of despair. And it is then that we can trust in what God says about joy and knowing that joy is not connected always to our circumstances. It certainly can be. And I think that we could even go to the Old Testament for this because I think of Psalms 1. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, the blessed man, the happy man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. And whatever he does will prosper. God's promise to us that if we will delight in the word of God, that there will be a blessing with us. Well, I want to just share with you six different things that the Bible says about joy. Let's just consider it for, for a little bit. Number one, love is the key to godly joy. Love is the key to godly joy. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So he says, I've spoken some things to you so that my joy can be there and your joy can be full. Two sources of joy, my own full joy and the joy of Christ in my life. And if you go back to John 15, 11, and you look at 10 and you look at 12, he's talking about love. He talks about the love that we have for one another and loving one another as Christ has loved us. 
These things I speak to you that, your joy, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And the context is love. Love is the key to our joy because we are truly to love one another. The Old Testament, it said that when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandments, he went to two of them. There are 613 Old Testament commandments. Jesus went to two of them. The first one was to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to live God with everything. The second, he said, is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's good for me. It, that, that helps me to know that I am supposed to, the way I'm supposed to love people is the way that I want to be treated, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you want to be loved? How do you want people to treat you? That's the way that you treat people. That's very helpful to me. But Jesus took things one step further. He didn't say, a new covenant I give unto you. What, what's, what's new about the covenant when he says, love one another? We're already told, love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, a new covenant I give to you, that you would love one another, even as I have loved you. Now the new covenant is not love one another, not love your neighbor as yourself, but love one another as I have loved you. You know who I think would have been really good at this? It's John. Over and over again in, in, in the book of John, he says, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. He would know how to love people the way he's loved by God. I love that John had that sense of the love that Jesus had for him. And I wonder if we have that sense, if we know how much God loves us and if we would love people the way he loves us. So, so love is the key to godly joy. We'll have his joy and our joy will be full. And, and he tells us these things for that reason. The second thing that the Bible says about joy is in his presence is fullness of joy. In the presence of God. We'll talk about that here in just a minute, but I wanted you to see it in Psalm 1611. Uh, you will show me the paths of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about in his presence or fullness of joy is because a lot of people have problems feeling the presence of God. It's one of the things that people talk to me about regularly. I just, I just don't feel his presence. People talk about feeling God's presence and I just don't feel it. I pray, I'm talking to him and I don't feel his presence. You realize that you don't have to have feelings for God's word to be true. And if your feelings say that God's not present and God's word says that he is, God's word is true and your feelings are lying to you. You can't go by your feelings. And so Hebrews tells us that we go boldly to the throne of God, that because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, because we are forgiven, because we are righteous, because before positionally before God, we are perfect. You might not feel perfect. You may be like me. Whenever I go before God in prayer, the first thing I do is say, I'm sorry. It's like the comedian that said, the first thing you should say to your wife is you're sorry. You'll take care of a lot of things right away, right out of the chute. That's the same thing with God. First thing you should say is, Lord, I'm sorry. And we feel that because we feel our sin. We feel the weight of how our, our own personal struggles. But to know that positionally, because of the work of Christ, why was the cross so brutal? Why was it so bloody? Why did Jesus bleed from his hands and his feet and his side and his head? 
because he died for the sins of the heart. He died for the sins of the minds. He died for the, the sins of hands that do ungodly things. And he died for feet that go to places that they shouldn't go to make you 100% righteous before him so you can go boldly before the throne and know that when you stand before God and say, God, I need your help, that God's there. Jesus said, where two or three of you gather together, I am there in the midst of you. Now, this is often talked about in church, but when you read the context of that statement, it's talking about church discipline. He's saying that when two or three of you seek me to be able to handle a situation, I'm there in the presence of you. But still, the statement is true all the time that where we gather together in his name, he is with us. And, and here's the thing. God's everywhere, right? David said, where can I go from your presence? If I make my bed in the middle of the ocean, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. So God is everywhere. But then God's present with us here in a special way when we gather together. And when you seek him, when you sit down to be with him, he's present with you as well. And you just got to know that. If you and I were to hang out, we were to go to have lunch together and I got there to lunch with you and you said, I just don't feel like you're here. <laughs> feel like you're somewhere else. Oh, I don't know that we're going to get too much done. <laughs> know that we're going to be able to fellowship much. That's kind of what we do with God. God, I just don't know that you're here. I just don't feel you. And God's like, I'm here. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to answer your prayers. I've told you, ask me and I'll give it to you. Call out to me and I'll answer you. I'm here. I'm ready. And you're like, I don't feel you. I just don't feel God's presence. I just don't know what to do. And God's like, I'm here. In his presence is fullness of joy. What a great promise. The third thing the Bible says about joy is that a life in the spirit or a life led by the spirit brings joy. Now, there are other things we could talk about as well. The Bible says that if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a verse all of us should memorize. And it's something we should endeavor to do daily. I encourage you to, to, to take pleasure in God daily. That you can have the desires of your heart met. To abide in Christ daily. And to walk in the spirit daily. That you would say, when I get up in the morning, I want to walk in the Spirit. Our default is not the Spirit, even as Christians. Even though our spirit has been brought to life and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, our default is to walk in our flesh. And if we walk in our flesh, what do we reap? Corruption, right? We, we sow to the flesh, from the flesh we reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit we reap life. And so it says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit... And then we get nine of them is love, joy, and peace. And I love that that's where it starts. If that was all it is, if it said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, it would be a beloved verse. But it goes on. We have love, we have joy, we have peace when we walk in the Spirit. We suffer long or have patience when we walk in the Spirit. We're full of kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which a lot of us need that self-control. Do, if you, you lack self-control, are you walking in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh? So that a life in the Spirit is a life of joy. It's one of the fruits that we have joy in our lives, even when there are circumstances that we should not be joyful about. The fourth thing the Bible says about joy is that 
Placing your mind on God brings joy. In His presence is a fullness of joy, but also placing your mind on Him. Listen to what it says in Psalm 63, verses 6 and 7. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. I don't know what he's picturing God as. I like to think an eagle. In the, in the shadow of your wings. I know Jesus talked about gathering Jerusalem like a mother hen would gather her chicks. That's not quite the picture that I have in the wings of God. I think of God as a, as a majestic eagle and us in the shadow of his wings rejoicing. Again, our lives may be taking turns that we didn't want to go, didn't want to go down, wrote down roads we didn't want to go down. But because we put our minds on him, there is a joy that is there. The fifth thing the Bible says about joy is that the power of prayer brings joy. Prayer brings joy. This is Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So Paul's praying for the church at Rome. And he says to them, and he's never been there. He just didn't start the church there. He wanted to go there. He eventually went there on God's dime. He's writing this book from Rome because he was arrested and brought to Rome. And we're going to talk about that in our study next week. But here as he writes to the Romans, he says, now may the God may, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. Again, as he prayed for the, the, the church in Philippi, that they would have joy. If we would pray for one another, there will be joy from our prayers. He says that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's the walking in the Spirit again. So he prays for the church at Philippi to have joy. He prays for the church at Rome to have joy. And when I was looking at this passage to see which one I wanted to use, there are a lot of other churches he prayed for their joy. It was something he prayed for regular. When was the last time that you prayed for the joy of people that you know in Christ, that you really sought God for it? Again, it's something that God wants to answer. The sixth thing I have that the Bible says about joy is that joy will eventually replace heartache. I started this section off by talking about despair and depression and heartache. Listen to Psalms 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. If you are in, the, in a season of difficulty, of grieving, of struggling, know that joy will come in the morning. God will bring you through this time. This will not be the end of it. You will find joy that comes from God. What great promises you and I receive at the tremendous work that God gives us. Now look at verse 6. He goes on now. We're going to um, we're go through verse 11. He says, being confident of this very thing, this is in Philippians um, chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And you know what I'm going to do at this point? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change things up. I would rather not hurry through this verse. I want to be able to spend some time on it. 
So I want to start our next study here at verse 6 instead of just kind of going quickly through these things because it's such a, uh, it's such a powerful verse. So in a football analogy, I'm going to call an audible and we're going to end the service right here. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that your word is so rich. Thank you that over the next few months, we as a body will be able to approach the book of Philippians and talk about joy and look at our own lives and what you want from us. Thank you that Paul, even in prison, could talk about the joy that he has and the joy that they would have 14 times in this book. And Lord, we pray that we would seek you and ask you that we would pray for one another that our joy would indeed be full. Thank you so much for all that you're doing and the way that you're working in our lives. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.